Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 11, Ruled by Rebels. Patliputra, the great city of northern India. And we're there during the height of the Gupta Golden Age, around 467 AD. And we're there during April, festival time. A festival that had been celebrated every year there for a century or more. As evening comes and the stars come out, one by one, the people of Patliputra pour out onto the streets. Parades of carts are pushed through the tree-lined avenues, and on the carts are bamboo structures, four stories high, and around the structures are wound fine bolts of linen in bright colours. And amongst the crowd you might see umbrellas with streamers fluttering in the wind, and underneath there would be statues of the Brahminical gods or of Buddha, made of fine lapis lazuli. Outside the city, the Buddhist monks of the region line up in neat order. The Brahmins open the gates and they invite the Buddhist monks in, and the Buddhist monks process solemnly through the city. But it's not all solemnity, there are gifts too. The merchants open up their houses, and the widows, the poor, and the sick amongst the city, they gather at the merchants' houses and they're treated by the doctors, hired by the merchants, or they receive gifts of food. Musicians are there too, and as they string up their instruments, they're paid, not in money, but in flowers and they start to pluck. Then the party really starts. Musicians pluck their lyres to ever higher and more frantic notes, and the theatres are full too, and the actors draw their audiences in deeper and deeper into the tale. The lights would burn through the night, to the morning, another day, and then through another night again. Two days of celebrations. It must have been grand to be there. It's a grand festival. And just generally, times were good. And they seemed to have been good forever. And not only that, this was the very centre of the empire which had brought that good. This was the emperor's own city. It must have all seemed like it would last forever. But if you were to listen very closely on such a night, you might hear something. Underneath all of the sounds of revelry and laughter, a low, dark whisper. This would be the last time that people of Patliputra celebrated with such confidence, because that great Gupta empire that they felt so much a part of, that felt so eternal, it was more fragile than they could have imagined. And it was all just about to come toppling down. the worst, most chaotic years were the next nine, ten years. And news must have come to the people of Patliputra in spurts. No telecoms, no TV, no fake news sites here. First, the terrible news that the emperor was dead. Skandagupta, who had ruled for decades, who had faced down the invincible Huns and beaten them, and saved the empire from splitting apart. He was gone. His brother was now emperor. It was talk of it being a coup. No, another source might have said, it wasn't a coup, it was some peaceful transfer of power. And almost as soon as the people of Patliputra had got used to the new emperor, he was dead too. Why? The new emperor, he was the old emperor's brother, so he was an old man, but still, 
two emperors in such quick succession? Was it poison? The throne passed to the new emperor's son, Kumaragupta. And just as they'd got used to Kumaragupta, he died. And then his brother took over. What happened? Three emperors. Why had the new one died? He was only young after all. No excuse for him dying of old age. Rumours would have spread through the city once again. It was secretly a coup, that his brother had killed him and taken the throne for himself. But who is to say which rumours were true? The sum total is that over a span of a decade or less, the empire had been ruled at the top by four different men, four different emperors. And perhaps the people of Patliputra somehow could make sense of all this rush of bad news. But more likely, I think, they sat down in those tree-lined streets, just bewildered. And today, we're just as bewildered as the people of Patliputra were back then. More in fact. Just 100 years ago from today, we thought that the Gupta Empire stopped with Skandagupta, that after his death it just cut off and disappeared, disintegrated, almost instantly. But since then, slowly, over the decades, evidence has trickled out, bit by bit. A coin there, a seal here, an inscription there. Lots of evidence, but actually not enough. We still don't have a clear picture of what went on during those tumultuous ten years. If you read the academic historians, they've got quite a, a fun game trying to work out which emperor did what in which order. We know the names of the emperors from the coins and the seals, but we don't know the order in which they ruled, and we don't know uh, what their relations are. We don't know who's a brother, of who's a father, and so forth. And it doesn't help that, as usual for this period, each of the emperors can go by several different names, or maybe would be just mentioned by their title. So, as a result of the slender evidence and the confusion, there's no agreement on the truth about what happened during the, that decade, the decade of four emperors. There's not even agreement on whether there are four emperors or five emperors during that period, or some other number. And frankly, even after the dust has settled a little bit, and the decade of the four emperors is over, we're still a little bit confused about what's going on. That period, the period after the decade of the four emperors, that's going to be the focus of this episode. But it's worth knowing that the story we're going to tell in this episode about it, it's not the only story available. It's not an implausible story, and what I've tried to do is take parts of the story and make sure each part is from a leading or important historian working in India. So this isn't some crazy cockamamie story, but it's worth knowing there are other stories, other versions of events with different people doing different things in different orders. I've decided to just completely overlook the debate about who did what and when, because, well, to be honest, I just don't find it that interesting. So here it is, the story of the period after the decade of the four emperors. A new emperor is on the throne, and the Huns will soon be back. After the decade of the four emperors, when the dust settled, the emperor was a man called Buddha Gupta. Buddha Gupta means protected by the sage or something like that. Actually, Buddha's from the same Sanskrit root as Buddha, of Buddhism fame. Uh, the root is uh, Buddhati, to wake up. Buddha Gupta's name, though, isn't necessarily a reference to Buddhism. There are other people around called Buddha, 
but more about the ties between the Guptas and the Buddhas in the next episode. Anyway, when the decade of the Four Emperors was over and the dust settled, Emperor Buddha Gupta ruled. The empire stretched to the same distant borders, the same as it always had. From ocean to ocean, from the Bay of Bengal in the east to Gujarat in the west, from the Himalayas in the north to Malwa in the south and beyond. Not all of India was under control of the Guptas, of course, much of South India was out of reach, and very crucially, uh, much of Northwest India, mostly in modern-day Pakistan, that was still beyond the border of the Gupta Empire. And there, the enemies of the Guptas, the Huns, lurked on the other side of the bank of the river Indus. And the borders of the Gupta Empire that Buddha Gupta inherited, they were pretty much as they always had been. But that decade, that turbulent decade of four emperors, that had changed things. The extent of the empire was the same, but the quality of the empire had changed considerably. The empire had become like a cheese that's gone mouldy. A hundred small states sprouting within it and growing. And there were even states within states. And that's the key to everything that would happen to the empire next. Okay, states within states within states, that's pretty abstract. What did it mean in practice? To try and get a handle on it, we can look at the three different sorts of states growing, festering inside the Gupta Empire. First, there were the feudatory states. Those were the states in the traditional sense, kingdoms they were mostly. They were societies with their own rulers and their own tax systems and their own laws. And they were working within the Gupta Empire, but the kings of those territories had power over their own territory. Now, these feudatory states had been there almost from the very beginning of the Gupta Empire. If you remember way back to episodes 3.3-3.4, we heard how the empire was largely built by the great conqueror, Samudra Gupta. And we heard how he conquered North India, and he deposed the great kings, and he added the territory of the great kings to the Gupta Empire's core lands. And then that he turned south. Now, Samudra Gupta might have added the territory of the great kings of North India to his own territory, might have made their territory almost his own personal possession. But there were other kings, smaller territories out of the way, up in North India. And there were other kings further south. And Samudra Gupta didn't just take their territories. In fact, after he'd conquered them, he reinstated the conquered kings. He put them back in charge of their territories. Or, if by accident he'd managed to kill the local king, he'd find some other local chap who was competent to become king in his place. Now, this policy of not taking over and absorbing every state, that was good practical policy in many ways. Getting a local ruler was smart because, hey, local people know local systems, and so long as you keep a local ruler under the thumb, they're going to raise taxes for you as well or better than the next chap. Alexander the Great had done the same, and so had many great conquerors. But this policy of reinstating defeated kings was also, maybe even primarily, a moral policy. It's simply part of the ancient Indian worldview that a noble conqueror isn't conquering for greed. He doesn't conquer to gain loot, he doesn't conquer uh, to gain land, he's simply there for glory and virtue. And as a result, he naturally reinstates the kings that he's conquered. Anyway, whatever the reason, 
The Gupta Empire had been largely constructed out of a core of home territory in northern India, surrounded by a quilt patchwork of smaller feudatory states, each feudatory state ruling themselves and their internal matters pretty much autonomously. Not that the kings of these feudal states could do what they wanted. They had to pay a monetary tribute to the Guptas, and they had to come in person to bow at the feet of the emperor. And they even had to marry their daughters into the Gupta family or friends of the Gupta family. And all of these policies were designed to keep that patchwork together, to keep all of these feudatory states submissive to the command of the emperor. But by the time of this episode, all of that was generations ago. That was almost 150 years before the rule of Buddha Gupta. Ancient history, even to ancient Indians. But the way that the empire had been set up all of that time ago, that had a huge influence on the way that the empire was now. Because those feudatory states, they hadn't gone away, and they hadn't been absorbed and just become Gupta territory. In fact, in the time since, these feudatory states had grown more independent and more powerful. And they'd grown in number. Just before that terrible decade of the four emperors, it said that there were so many of these feudatory kings that when they came to bow down before the emperor, the halls of the emperor were rushing with the wind of their lowering heads. I don't know how many kings you need to bow at the same time to get a rush of wind, but presumably it's an awful lot. The feudatory states had also grown in power. They'd been left alone pretty much to their own devices. They got used to wielding power in their own lands. And now that the Gupta Empire was starting to look more fragile, well, the feudatory states started to think of themselves as basically independent. And a sign of this was that increasingly, when one of the feudatory kings built a great temple, a great dam, and they wrote an inscription saying how wonderful they were, they no longer mentioned the Guptas. In times gone past, it was said, oh, under the great Gupta Emperor, I built this dam. But nowadays, they didn't even bother to mention the Gupta Emperor at all. For people, ordinary people, living in the feudatory states at this time, it might have almost seemed that they were not in the Gupta Empire at all. There are other sorts of states growing on the mouldy cheese of the Gupta Empire, though. There were the imperial officers. In that age, that meant the people who ran the government, and also the scholars, the people of learning, the poets, the playwrights, and the statesmen, all wrapped up in one. Now, there were imperial officers serving the emperor, and there were also imperial officers serving various different governors in various different roles. Like many people in power, the imperial officers found ways to pass that power onto their sons. And as the Gupta Empire went on, the imperial officer roles started to be hereditary. So we start hearing that a royal priest passed the priesthood onto his son, or that this senior general passed the generalship onto his son. And then their sons managed to turn and pass it on to their sons, and so on. But it wasn't just that these offices became hereditary. The different families, which were now owning almost the imperial officerships, these different families started to be tied with one another, started to clump up into groups. So the post of a governor of a certain province 
would pass down within one family, and the post of chief advisor to that governor would pass down within a different family, with one governor advised by a certain chief minister, and then his son would become governor and would be advised by the chief minister's son. And you can see how over the decades, these ministers were starting to form into factions, tied by generation after generation of cooperation and service. And no doubt with a greater and growing expectation, a demand even, for power. The third sort of state within a state came from the religious orders. Now, religious orders owning villages or owning lands, that was nothing new. As long as there had been emperors in India before even, land had been given by the rulers uh, to various religious orders. Initially to Brahmins, groups of Brahmins, and then later to Buddhist and Jain communities of monks. Sometime around the time of the decade of the four emperors, though, the nature of these donations changed. In the old days, it seems like the religious orders were just given the land, or they might just be given the income from a certain village. So the government taxman would go to the village, collect up the money, and then give it to the local monastery or the local parmins, giving them a permanent, stable source of income, a bit like a modern endowment, I suppose. But now, after the decade of the four emperors, these new grants appeared, grants that gave much more. Take, for example, the grant of Kumaragupta II to a Brahmin chap called Gopas Farmin. This was during the decade of the four emperors. Now, we found the inscription of this grant, so we know the legal details of it. We know exactly what was handed over. The land from the village is passed over to the Brahmin and his community, and a trench was dug around it to mark it out from the emperor's land. And more than that, Brahmins were allowed to collect tax from within their land. It wasn't the state, it wasn't the tax man going in and gathering it. The Brahmins themselves did the tax. In fact, the state's troops were not even allowed within the land. And they were not to ask the Brahmins for anything, no food and no shelter. Even the royal family was banned from coming to this Brahmin's village. In fact, only one slender cord tied that Brahmin village to the apparatus of the Gupta Empire. When someone was caught stealing and they were fined, that fine went to the imperial treasury. But that was it. Otherwise, this is like its own independent little state. And these new mini-states started to be called Brahmin countries. Now, if all of that's too abstract, we can get a better picture of what it all means by looking at one place in particular, Malwa. Malwa is perhaps the most important province in the empire, at least militarily. In fact, it was so important that the capital had been moved there by previous emperors. And from a military point of view, the most important town in Malwa was Aran. Aran was surrounded on three sides by, by river, and that made it a really good defensive point. And it had control also of the routes west and the route north and south. Aran was so important that before the decade of the four emperors, the region had been governed by a close relative of the emperor, a son or a brother. But now, that vital town of Aran was not ruled by a Gupta. It was ruled by a chap called Matravishnu. Now, Matravishnu's father had probably been the head of a Brahmin Dessa, one of those independent small religious states. And his grandfather had been an important Brahmin too. Now, Matravishnu's own rank is actually quite feeble. It's not very impressive. He's a Vishapati, a district officer in charge of Aran and the immediate surroundings. 
not a large area. But actually, in his inscription, he declares himself to have a much grander position. He calls himself king. And he says that he rules all the way up to the borders of the four oceans. He says he was virtuous in battle against many enemies. This is clearly a local official who feels like he's on the verge of supreme power. But he was so far removed from supreme power that much Vishnu wasn't even under the Guptas. His boss wasn't the Gupta emperor. His boss was a king of part of Malwa, who was in turn a feudatory of the Gupta emperor. So Aaron, which had once been a personal possession of the Gupta emperor, was nowadays something far removed from it. For the people living in Aaron, the Gupta emperor was just the boss of the regional boss of the local boss. And everyone knew that the buck basically stopped with the local boss and the regional boss barely mattered and the Gupta emperor right at the top, completely irrelevant. Now, no doubt, things were different in other parts of the Gupta empire. Certainly in Patliputra, where the emperor still had his capital, the emperor was still in charge. But this is still a huge change to have parts of your empire completely removed from the emperor like that, or almost completely removed. It's as if the mayor of Chicago claimed to rule from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and the governor of Illinois barely mattered to the people of Chicago, and the present, he was just some guy who happened to own this land long ago. This is the picture of an empire teetering on the edge. Whilst the Gupta Empire gathered mould, the old enemy stirred on its borders. That fierce force who had rushed into India a generation before and only been beaten back at great cost. The White Huns. The White Huns ruled Ganhara and some other parts of northwest India. And since they'd been beaten by the Guptas a generation before, they'd stayed there, separated from the rest of India by the Great Tar Desert. And they seemed, for a while, to be content to slumber. But now... In the reign of Buddha Gupta, they stirred. The old king of the Huns had died, and a new king came to power. His name, by the way, was Toramana. Toramana is Turkic, and it means the rebel. There's a story in a later medieval chronicle about his youthful ambition. It says that uh, his brother was still king, and Toramana was eager for power. In fact, so eager that he couldn't wait. He wanted to start his own state. So he started minting his own coins. Now, that was a bit rash. You can't really go about making a bunch of coins with your face on them and your name on them, and then start spending them and not expect to get caught. And his brother the king caught him. Toromanu was probably shut away in prison. But if the story was true, he must have got out quickly and got his hands on the crown with his own state for real this time. Toromanu became king of the Huns. And it turned out that, as a king, Toromanu was a man of culture, and especially a man of other people's culture. He was one of those people who just liked absorbing bits from the peoples that he met around. Take the Iranians, for example. Not too long ago, they'd been deadly enemies of the Huns, but now Toromanu was infatuated with Iranian culture or at least with Iranian religion, the parts that focused on worshipping the sun. 
So Toromonu named his son Mirirakula. Mirirakula is an Iranian name, and it's got a wonderful dainty meaning. It means sunflower. And Mirirakula, when he comes to power himself, he's definitely not going to be dainty, but that's a story for the next episode. The current king of the Huns, Toromonu, he not only picked up Iranian culture, he also picked up some Indian culture. It's said that he was involved with the Buddhists in Punjab. At the time, the Buddhists were really flourishing there. And someone constructed a monastery, and he dedicated the merit that he would gain from constructing the monastery to the king of the Huns. Later Buddhist texts say that Toromanu, after death, passed on and had a good life. And that's normally a good indicator that the chap was pretty influential, pretty positive to the Buddhists in his life. Jain texts also jump in, and they say that Toromanu, late in his life, uh, converted to Jainism. Whatever the accuracy of these stories, what's clear is that the king of the Huns appreciated Indian culture and started to pick up some for himself. He even started to stylize himself Maharaja Di Raja Maharaja, which is an Indian title if there ever was one. And Toromanu started to learn more and more about the Guptas in particular. In fact, his teacher, his guru, was himself a member of the Gupta family. It was a chap by the name of Hari Gupta. We don't really know anything about him beyond the fact that he was a Gupta royal me- member. I mean, presumably he was dissatisfied with the current emperor and he was willing to serve the old enemy. But the point is, Toromanu was getting the inside knowledge on the Guptas. And he was soon to put that knowledge to use. Because that same ambition he'd had was a youth, the ambition that had led him to mint his own coins before he was even king, that was still in him. And it made him want to take over other kingdoms. He spent a bit of time expanding his lands in northwest India, but really, he had his eyes turned eastward, towards the Gupta Empire itself. Emperor Buddhagupta was no fool. He saw the threat on his borders, the old enemy, the Huns, stirring, getting ready to strike. And Buddhagupta set about preparing the empire as best he could for the inevitable. The first thing he did was move his capital away from Pataliputra to Ayodhya. Now, Pataliputra was perhaps the grander city, and it had been the seat of the emperors of Magda, the Mauryan emperors, But Ayodhya, that was further west. And it was uh, where the two rivers met, the Ganga and the Yamuna. A defensible position. Closer to the Hana menace and more defensible, this was the place to run the defence of the empire from. The emperor didn't stop with just relocating his capital. He started to think about how he could use the very weak parts of the empire and turn them into strengths. One of the provinces of the Gupta Empire, closest to the Huns, way over to the west, was ruled by one of those new states within a state. It was a classic example of this mould growing on the Gupta Empire. Generations ago, a general of the Gupta Empire had been given the province to command, to be governor of. By the way, this is the bit of modern Gujarat that sticks out into the ocean. Now, the general had taken charge of that region, and he'd managed to pass it on to his son. And his son, in turn, had managed to pass it on to his son. 
and the family had become so ensconced there that they almost ruled the region independently. Now, normally, the rulers still called themselves general, because the first person who had been given the province had been a general. But in practice, they acted as if they were kings. It was now not really a province of the Gupta Empire at all. It had gradually, but steadily, become its own little state. They called themselves the Sun Worshippers. Now, Buddha Gupta must have been a man who could see things for what they really were. He didn't sweeten the pill. This state was in a vital location, but Buddhagupta must have been able to see that it wasn't under his control, except in a very nominal sense. And he didn't try to change that. He didn't try to get the state back on side, try to force it to become a proper province of the Gupta Empire under his command. Instead, he went to the capital of the sun worshippers, and by his own hand, he made the general, the ruler of that place, into a Maharaja, into a king in his own right. Now the sun worshippers had pride. They had their own land. And when the time came, that pride would serve them well. When the Huns came over the horizon, maybe, just maybe, they'd fight more fiercely. And maybe, just maybe, after it was all over, they'd remember the Gupta Emperor's generosity and remain a loyal part of the empire. War was coming. Toromaru, king of the Huns, he knew it. And Buddhagupta, king of the Guptas, he knew it too. And both had made their preparations as best they could. All that remained was war itself. I'm afraid when the Huns invaded, it was over almost as soon as it had begun. It turned out that none of Buddhagupta's preparations made even the slightest difference. Those newly crowned kings of Gujarat, they were rolled over by the Huns, without resistance. And from there, the Huns headed east, straight into that vital province, Malwa, we talked about. Militarily crucial. Very quickly, the Huns had possession of the west of the province. Now at that time, the east of the province was ruled by two brothers. Their exact names aren't very important here, but they both ended in Vishnu, so we'll call them the Vishnu brothers. Now, the Vishnu brothers had been devoted family men, and they'd built a temple to Vishnu dedicated to their parents. They built it in that absolutely key military town, Eron, the one nestled in the crook of a river, surrounded on three sides by water. So this was a vitally important town to these rulers. Not only was it the most important military site in the empire, it also held the temple dedicated to their parents. But it turned out not to matter. It didn't matter how important the town was to them personally, or how much it mattered to the Gupta Empire, the Huns were here. And Toromara, king of the Huns, took what he wanted. The town of Aran was soon in his hands. The battle must have been fierce. One of the Vishnu brothers lost his life, and his dying wish was that his brother build him a temple of Vishnu dedicated to him. So the remaining Vishnu brother went to his new ruler, Turamara, and asked him for his permission. Now, Turamara, as you will recall, was a man of culture and war equally. And so he gave permission for this temple to be built. And the remaining Vishnu brother built the temple for his brother in the same town that he had built the temple for his parents. That Huns had taken not his life, but they'd taken his kingdom and his family. 
From the Gupta side, all must have seemed lost. The carefully built defences of Buddha Gupta had been swept away before the Huns, and now the Huns were in Malwa, that military linchpin, and from there, they could go wherever they wanted. They could carve up the Gupta Empire as they pleased. But the Gupta Empire was not done yet. An army set out for the defeated province, and at the head of the army was the best general in the Gupta Empire. And next to him was a prince from the royal family itself, Manu Gupta. And Manu Gupta, we're told, was the bravest man on earth. The fighting between the Gupta army and the Huns was fierce, brutal. And at its end, the great general of the Guptas was dead. They burned his body there at Iran, at that military linchpin town. And his wife went with him to join him in the flames. It's one of the first cases of Sati that we've come across. But although the cost to the Guptas was high, the Huns were once again thrown out. The undefeatable king, Toramara, he'd been defeated. And the lands that he'd taken in his great sudden thrust were all taken back. Malwa became once again part of the empire. The new kings of Gujarat, they retook their kingdom for themselves. And they did remember the Gupta Emperor's kindness and they stayed part of the empire. And Toramara, he shrank back to the Indus River system. And there, in his capital, he crowned his son as king and retired, dying a few years later. For a second time, the Gupta Empire had held back the Huns. Buddha Gupta died a little while later, and at his death it said that he was without rival and without enemy. And that kind of makes him sound like Skandagupta. Skandagupta, the man who kept the empire in one piece despite the external pressures and fought off the Huns when they came. But probably Buddha Gupta's legacy wasn't that good. The economy under Buddha Gupta had taken a huge hit. Buddha Gupta had only released one type of gold coin, had an archer on it. And the quality of gold in that coin was very poor. The purity was just hovering a little over 50%. And Buddhagupta made almost no silver coins. He only had a few in the central provinces. Many of the feudatory states of the Gupta Empire, they saw what was happening. They saw which way the wind was blowing. And now they were almost completely autonomous. They remained part of the Gupta Empire in name only. Probably some of the provinces in the west of the empire were lost to the empire, even in name. The Gupta Empire's golden age, which had only been really quite recent, was now a distant memory. The Gupta Emperor's rule was a shadow of what it had been, and soon the Huns would be back, and they would be fiercer and more ruthless than ever before. And not only that, other powers would arise from the south, seemingly from nowhere, to threaten the empire. Those three powers, the Guptas, the Huns, and the power from the south, they would clash, and this time the Guptas would no longer be supreme, no longer be the big boy. Those three would meet almost as equals, and the war between them would constantly be in the balance, first one winning, then the other, then the other, until finally the whole charade came crashing down. But that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. Actually, this week we got a bit of trouble because all of our sources are really fragmentary for this period. 
just names and the odd inscription. There's nothing tremendously long and narrative and satisfying. So I thought instead of having one of those Indian sources, we'd have something from the White Hunts. So this is an extract of an inscription from Toromanu's son. Starts out by doing a bit of sun worship, and then it talks about Toromanu, and then it introduces his son. It's going to be the subject of the next episode. And it goes like this. The mountain of dawn, dispelling distress, is the light of the house which is the world. He brings about the destruction of night, who creates the fresh beauty of water lilies by his rays which are the colour of molten gold. There was a ruler of the earth of great merit. He was renowned by the name of the glorious Toromana. He had a heroism that was specially characterised by truthfulness, and by that heroism he ruled the earth with justice. And he, the fame of whose family had risen high, had a son of unequalled prowess, the lord of the earth. He is renowned under the name of Mihirikalu. that's it for this episode. Join us next episode when the Gupta Empire continues to crumble and the Huns come one last time. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast and if you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity. It's the Sneha City Memorial Fund. The details are on the website and there's a link to the website in the description of the podcast. Have a great week. Take care.